Well, let's return to John chapter 2. John chapter 2, verses 13 through 25. And we need to return for a second sermon on Jesus cleansing the temple. I preached our first sermon two weeks ago, and then of course last week we had a guest speaker here with us. So let's return to this delightful passage. And we will have to put some pieces together this morning from various sermons that I've preached through the last several years, actually. And so this will be some review to try to understand what's really happening here. In three successive narratives, between chapters 2 and 3, John introduces us to Jesus as the creator of the new wine, a symbol of the new creation, the builder of the new temple, and the author of the new birth. And the central narrative records Jesus' first cleansing of the temple. The second cleansing, recorded in the synoptics, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, occurred much later during Jesus' final week in Jerusalem, just before he died. And two weeks ago, I explained the double cleansing view. Today, what I want to do is get this passage situated both geographically and theologically. All right? So verse 13. The the Passover of the Jews was at hand, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. In the temple he found those who were selling oxen and sheep and pigeons, and the money changers sitting there. And making a whip of cords, he drove them all out of the temple with the sheep and oxen. And he poured out the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. And he told those who sold the pigeons, take these things away. Do not make my father's house a house of trade. His disciples remembered that it was written, zeal for your house will consume me. So the Jews said to him, what sign do you show us for doing these things? Jesus answered them, destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. The Jews then said, it has taken 46 years to build this temple, and will you raise it up in three days? But he was speaking about the temple of his body. When therefore he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this, and they believed the scripture and the word that Jesus had spoken. Now when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, many believed in his name when they saw the signs that he was doing. But Jesus and his part did not entrust himself to them, because he knew all people and needed no one to bear witness about man, for he himself knew what was in man. The opening lines of John's gospel identify Jesus, the Logos, in radical equality with God. The Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. And if you look at John 1 and verse 14, John told us, and the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory. 
God, friends, lived in a flesh and blood human body. And observe the word dwelt. It's the Greek word tabernacle. The tabernacle was a temple's predecessor. And the term tabernacle instantly connects us to a lengthy backstory running through the entire Old Testament concerning a tabernacle and a temple. If indeed Jesus is the Word, God, tabernacling among us, how does that affect your interpretation of John 2 and verse 19? Jesus answered them, destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. Now, do the Jews understand Jesus' statement? Well, they respond in verse 20, the Jews then said, it has taken 46 years to build this temple, and will you raise it up in three days? They cannot imagine Jesus single-handedly reconstructing a building that took 46 years to construct in a mere three days. But Jesus is not speaking of Herod's temple. Keep reading. But he was speaking about the temple of his body. So again, here's a crucial connection. Jesus deliberately associates the temple or the tabernacle with his body. So what is the relationship between the temple and Jesus' incarnation, his body? Let's begin with that question today, and let's start at the beginning. Way back in the Garden of Eden, God lived in the presence of man. They lived in the garden. God's presence came down into the garden and God's presence is closely associated with, if not at times synonymous with, God's glory. God's presence, God's glory, they're often used interchangeably. But of course, man fell in the garden, and God withdrew his presence, and the earth was plunged underneath a curse. And did you know that Genesis never refers to the glory of God. Apparently, God and man cannot occupy the same space any longer. However, in Exodus, God's glorious presence suddenly appears. God redeems his people from slavery in Egypt. He sends plagues upon their captors. He splits apart a sea of water and he feeds them in the wilderness. Then in Exodus 16 and verse 6, we discover for the first time the word glory associated with God's presence. Listen to these words. And Moses and Aaron said to all the children of Israel, in the morning you shall see the glory of Yahweh. And sure enough, the next morning, quote, they looked toward the wilderness, and behold, the glory of Yahweh appeared in a cloud. That glory-filled cloud, of course, guided them through the wilderness. And these references to God's glorious presence continue. Exodus 24 reads, 
the glory of Yahweh dwelled on Mount Sinai. God has returned a tabernacle among his people. However, the relationship between God and man is extraordinarily complicated. And Exodus, of course, tells the people constantly sinning and God constantly threatening. God enacts a death penalty for anyone who so much as sets a foot on Mount Sinai. Then again, God gives the people a plan for building a sanctuary. And God determines that he will tabernacle, he will dwell right there in the middle of the 12 tribes. But that complication continues through Exodus chapter 40, where we read of the tabernacle's completion. Here's how Exodus ends. Then a cloud covered the tent of the congregation, and the glory of Yahweh filled the tabernacle. And Moses was not able to enter into the tent of the congregation because the cloud abode thereon. God's glory goes in and Moses goes out. God and man cannot occupy the same space. Nevertheless, we are better off than we were in Genesis where God's glory is nowhere to be found in any temple anywhere. Then again, don't forget that God's glorious presence was lethal. In 2 Samuel 6, when Uzzah touches the ark as it lurched on its ox cart, he collapsed dead. Fast forward now some five centuries after Exodus to 1 Kings chapter 7, and here we have a record of the completion of Solomon's temple. And it sounds eerily similar to Exodus chapter 40. And when the priest came out of the holy place, a cloud filled the house of Yahweh so that the priest could not stand to minister because of the cloud. For the glory, the presence of Yahweh filled the house of Yahweh. Does that sound familiar? Same cloud. Same glory and same problem. The glory of God goes in and the priests go out because God and man cannot occupy the same space. And listen to what Solomon says. Then Solomon said, Yahweh has said that he would dwell in thick darkness. God shrouds his glory away in mysterious gloom. He's back behind the veil. He's isolated. He's distant from his creation. And all too soon, Israel forsakes Solomon's temple for idols. After 400 years, the temple is finally destroyed by the Babylonians. After 70 years, the returning exiles come and rebuild the temple. But curiously, we never read of God's glorious presence like a cloud returning to that post-exilic temple. God's presence does not come back. In fact, Ezekiel has a great vision of Yahweh's presence leaving the temple. God's glorious presence has disappeared 
Nevertheless, Malachi predicts the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple. And there the Old Testament ends. An empty temple waiting for the presence of God. Fast forward now another four centuries. And notice a statement of the Jews in John 2 and verse 20. The Jews then said, it has taken 46 years to build this temple. What are they referring to? They're referring to Herod the Great's complete overhaul and enlargement of that post-exilic temple. That post-exilic temple that is still waiting for the return of God's presence. Herod began a complete overhaul and a massive rebuilding in approximately the year 20 B.C. Would you guess that a building which took some 46 years to build, 46 years thus far, is pretty important? That's longer than I have been alive. From our perspective, that's a building project that would have begun in the year 1976. And they are still working on it. Did you know this temple would remain under construction? It was largely there, but it remained under construction for another 30 years beyond this point in John 2. If you were to begin in 1976, that's a building that's finished finally in the year 2052. Would you say that's an important building? The temple was finally completed in the year 63 A.D. And here's an astonishing fact. Seven years later in 70 A.D. it was gone. Every last stone, just as Jesus predicted. Now, Josephus tells us Herod launched the temple project with some 10,000 workers. Eventually, that number swelled to 14,000. They started with an expansive platform that stretched over 37 acres. It can still be seen today. For comparison, the Great Pyramid expands over 13 acres. 13 acres in the Great Pyramid, 37-acre platform. There are foundation stones in Herod's temple and that platform that are 10 times larger than the largest stones in the Great Pyramids. On top of that platform, Herod raised a magnificent new temple that was three times taller, it's estimated, than Solomon's temple. This was the largest temple complex, so far as we know, in the entire Roman Empire. Josephus tells us that there was a pillared colony that stretched around the entire perimeter of that platform. And he tells us the thickness of each pillar was such that three men might, with their arms extended, fathom it round. These are massive pillars. The temple itself, Josephus says, was covered all over with plates of gold of great weight. And at the first rising of the sun reflected back a very fiery splendor. Josephus also says the inward parts were fastened with iron. 
which preserve the joints immovable for all future generations. This thing was built to last. And Everett Ferguson, a New Testament scholar, writes, the temple services were considered to unite with angelic worship, an invocation of the Lord on behalf of Israel and the world. The Jews interpreted their temple, get this, as a symbol of the cosmos, They understood it as holding the whole cosmos together. This is where God and men are reunited. And that all explains the Jews' skepticism in verse 20. The Jews then said, It has taken 46 years to build this temple. And will you raise it up in three days? But Jesus was not talking about Herod's temple. He was talking about the true temple where God resides. What the Jews did not admit, but what Jesus undoubtedly knew, and you know also because I've told you previously, was that the Holy of Holies in Herod's temple was empty. Totally empty. Josephus tells us the ark was never returned after the the Babylonian captivity. First Maccabees tells us Judas Maccabeus restored the temple after its pollution by Antiochus IV. He restored the lampstand, the altar of incense, the table of holy vessels, but no ark. When the Roman emperor, when the Roman general, rather Pompey, invaded Jerusalem in the year 63 BC, he actually entered into the temple, right into the holy of holies, and he looked around and said, "The room is empty. There's nothing here." There's no ark. Now Malachi said, get this, the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple. But does God intend to return to a totally empty room? Well, let's interpret Malachi in light of John chapter 2. Look again at verse 14. In the temple, Jesus found those who were selling oxen and sheep and pigeons and the money changers sitting there and making a whip of cords. He drove them all out of the temple with the sheep and oxen. And he poured out the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. And he told those who sold the pigeons, take these things away. Do not make my father's house a house of trade. His disciples remember that it was written, zeal for your house will consume me. Well, I wonder, is this the Lord coming suddenly to his temple as Malachi Malachi predicted? If not, when did it happen? Presumably, it has to happen before 70 AD when the whole temple is destroyed. You follow that? Malachi says he's coming to his temple, all right? Well, here's Jesus suddenly coming to the temple. The Lord has to come to his temple suddenly, and it's got to happen before 70 AD because the whole thing's gone now. So was this the coming of the Lord to his temple? Well, let's turn back to Malachi chapter 3, and let's investigate a little more thoroughly to try to make sense of all this, all right? Malachi chapter 3. 
And again, God's presence descended dramatically on that tabernacle in the wilderness. God's presence also descended on Solomon's temple, albeit somewhat reluctantly, curiously. It came with severe warnings about keeping the law. And God's presence never returned to the post-exilic temple. Consequently, when Herod totally overhauls and massively expands that temple, there is this air of expectation that haunts Jerusalem. When will the Lord finally come to his temple? And that expectation was created by Malachi. Let's look at the text. Malachi chapter 3, verse 1. Behold, I send my messenger, and he will prepare the way before me, and the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple. And the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight, behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. That coming of the Lord to his temple is exactly what we are looking for when the New Testament opens. When's he coming? Well, keep reading. But who can endure the day of his coming? And who can stand when he appears? For he is like a refiner's fire. And we'll mention the refining process this morning of refining up the dross. And like a fuller soap, he will sit as a refiner and purifier of silver, and he will purify the sons of Levi and refine them like gold and silver, and they will bring offerings and righteousness to the Lord. Then the offering of Judah and Jerusalem will be pleasing to the Lord as in the days of old, as in the former years. Friends, when the Lord comes to his temple, he comes as a refining fire. The refiner's fire just purges that dross right out of the metal. Will and I didn't compare notes this morning, all right? But that fire purifies, it cleanses, it removes the dross. The fire of purging produces an offering that is pleasing to Yahweh. Now, of course, we do not read of Jesus offering a sacrifice in John 2 or lighting a fire, nothing like that. We don't read of that in the later cleansing either. But in fact, he does cleanse the temple. So does this passage somehow relate to the future cleansing of a temple? Is that the metaphor here, the image here? That it's pointing to Jesus cleansing the temple. Well, let's keep investigating. The passage also speaks of a fuller. A fuller is someone who worked to cleanse cloth, particularly wool. The alkali soaps he used were designed to clean cloth of all impurity. Now, I'd like for us to get an image in our minds. Can you imagine how filthy, how filthy the robes of the Old Testament priests became through animal sacrifice? Have you ever butchered an animal? I'm, I'm guessing that most of you have not. Okay? Brother Norman's a butchered animal. Was it messy? I'm guessing it was very messy. All right? The blood volume of a sacrificial lamb is approximately a gallon. And Josephus tells us that approximately 250 
thousand animal sacrifices were made at Passover in Jesus' day. That means the priests would have drained some 250,000 gallons of blood. An average backyard swimming pool contains about 20,000 gallons of water. 20,000 gallons of water in a swimming pool. 250,000 gallons of blood. Friends, every Passover, a river of blood drained off the Temple Mount and into the Kidron Valley below. And the Jewish Mishnah describes part of the process. Quote, The priests stood in rows, and their hands were basins of silver and basins of gold. An Israelite slaughtered his offering, and the priests caught the blood. The priest passed the basin to his fellow, and he to his fellow, each receiving a full basin and giving back an empty one. The priest nearest the altar tossed the blood against the base. Now try that 250,000 times. You can hardly imagine a filthier job than slaughtering so many animals. Blood was everywhere. It sloshed over the bull's rims and stained the garments of those priests. Its metallic stenches burned the nostrils and it just hung heavily out there on the air. By Passover's end, the priestly garments reeked of smoke and animal detritus. And the fuller's job was to return those wretched, wretched garments to their clean, white, original condition. Is that a job that any of you want? That's the image that Malachi puts into our minds. A complete purging. A complete cleansing. Now, was Malachi fulfilled when Jesus cleansed the temple? And the answer is, I personally do not believe that Malachi was fulfilled in either cleansing of the temple However, I do believe that Jesus' cleansing of the temple was merely the symbolic first gesture of a much more thorough cleansing to come. A purge so thorough that it resulted in the complete abolishment of the whole old covenant and the inauguration of a new covenant. A purge so thorough that it wiped Herod's temple right off the face of the earth And in the midst of that, I do believe the Lord came suddenly to his temple. So how does that all come to be? Well, let me take the rest of our time together and give you two reasons why I believe this. The first comes from the aftermath of a later purging of a temple that Matthew records in chapter 21. We don't have to turn there, but Matthew tells us, that Jesus found himself, after purging the temple, cleansing the temple, suddenly engaged in a heated argument with the Jewish religion, with the Jewish religious, say it again, with the Jewish religious leaders over the issue of authority, an argument that would eventually drive him right to his cross. At the epicenter of that argument, Jesus asked the authorities whether 
they have ever read in the scripture these words. The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. He's talking about the building of a whole new temple. Jesus then goes on to predict the total and absolute destruction of Herod's temple. Right there in that final week, every last stone, he says, will be hurled down to the ground. Well, that sounds to me like he is about to purge away the entire Old Testament temple, all of its systems, the whole Levitical priesthood, and he is about to build a whole new temple with a rejected cornerstone. We're starting all over again with something entirely different. And Josephus tells us that indeed in 70 AD, the whole Temple Mount seethed with a flame so hot that the gold and silver just melted into a liquid river of destruction. That sounds like a thorough purging that Malachi predicted. Jesus' cleansing was merely a symbolic gesture of a much more thorough purge that resulted in the obliteration of the whole thing. It's gone. The second reason I believe that Jesus' temple cleansing was merely a symbolic gesture of a much more thorough purge resulted in the destruction of the old covenant and the inauguration of the new covenant is found in verse 1. Notice the words, the messenger of the covenant. What does that mean? Well, the Lord comes to his temple, that is true, and Jesus came to his temple. But the Lord is also the messenger of the covenant. What's that all about? When he comes suddenly to the temple, the messenger of the covenant comes. Well, a messenger is somebody who comes along to herald a new rule or a new empire or a whole new era. A new era is dawning. And don't forget that your Bible is divided into precisely two covenants. We call them testaments, same thing. You have the old covenant, you have the new covenant. And let me make now four observations about these two covenants all right this is all part of point two four observations now four sub points about the new covenant or the two covenants first of all in jeremiah 31 god prophesied a day was coming when he would inaugurate a whole new covenant the old covenant of mount sinai with its law with its temple with its priests with its sacrifices is all going to go away why Here's why, because people broke the covenant. God wrote his law in stone, and we broke the law. So Jeremiah tells us God is going to make a revolutionary change. God isn't going to write his law in stone. God says, I will put my law within them, and I will write it on their hearts. He's going to change our hearts. Well, what about their sins? God says, I will forgive their iniquity, and I will remember their sins no more. Friends, that's the new covenant. God changed your hearts, 
and remembers your sin no more. So Malachi says, look for the Lord to come suddenly to his temple, but know this, when he comes, he is the messenger of the new covenant. He's coming with a covenant, a whole new covenant. So friends, what is Jesus up to in his ministry? Well, we get a clue in the Sermon on the Mount. And that leads us to a second observation. Jesus and the Sermon on the Mount, in fact, all of his preaching, is preaching the new covenant. If you listen to him, this is what he's doing. Jesus takes those laws that are written in stone and he writes them on your heart. You've always heard that you cannot murder. That's written in stone. Well, let's write that in your heart. You can't even hate. You've always heard that you cannot commit adultery. That's written in stone. Well, let's write that in your heart. You can't even lust. But when you reach the end of the Sermon on the Mount, you realize the whole thing is just totally impossible. To keep even one beatitude perfectly, your whole heart would have to be completely transformed from the inside out. When you reach the end of the sermon... Friends, you are desperate for that solution in the new covenant. I will forgive their iniquity and remember their sin no more. That's what I need. Well, how is that possible? Well, we can no more save ourselves than a river of blood from some 250,000 sacrificial lambs can save us. We need an infinitely more potent sacrifice. We need what Malachi describes in chapter 3 and verse 4. Look at the text. This is what we need. Then the offering of Judah and Jerusalem will be pleasing to Yahweh. We need a sacrifice that finally pleases him. But friends, did Jesus ever offer a sacrifice in the temple? Where's the sacrifice that's so pleasing to God? Well, that leads to a third observation. Jesus did indeed make a sacrifice, but not the sacrifice the Jews were expecting. After cleansing the temple the second time, friends, Jesus just turned on his heel. He left the temple behind for good, and he pronounced its utter and complete destruction. Well, if that's the case, where is this offering that's so pleasing to Yahweh? And when does the Lord ever come to his temple? Well, what you have to do is follow the high priest of the old covenant into his dark chamber. And there he will unwittingly prepare a final sacrifice. But on the surface, it looks like a conspiracy of wicked men fulfilling Psalm 2. Into Caiaphas' council comes a disciple of Jesus, Jesus named Judas. Like the wicked animal merchants whom Jesus just chased away, Judas sells a man whom John the Baptist called the Lamb of God. Meanwhile, Jesus sends his disciples to prepare a final Passover meal. Jesus eats the meal. And at every Passover, four cups of wine are drunk. 
The third is consumed immediately after the meal. After the meal, Jesus takes that third cup. And he breaks bread. And he gives it to his disciples. This is my body, which is broken, which is sacrificed for you. Then he dispensed the cup, saying to his disciples, Drink of it, all of you, for this is my blood, and listen to this, of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. Well, the covenant, the forgiveness of sins, Jeremiah spoke of a covenant of forgiveness. And what does this mean? My blood. A Passover sacrifice. Jesus then sang a hymn with the disciples. And traditionally, the fourth cup would have been, would have been consumed after the final hymn. But the texts tell us nothing of a fourth cup being drunk. The Passover concluded with the hymn. Something's very wrong with this to a Jewish listener. The fourth cup is not drunk. Rather, Jesus departs to Gethsemane. The end of the Passover actually has not yet come. The fourth cup has not been drunk. Jesus makes his way from the upper room down through the Kidron Valley, where a river of blood cascades down from the Temple Mount. He walks through the stream and that horrible scar etched in the side of the temple where the blood mingles with the water flowing from the fountain. Above the flames and smoke of thousands of sacrifice is ascending from the temple's altar. Jesus prays in the garden. And the high priest's men arrive to seize the final sacrifice, to seize an unblemished lamb, Jesus stands trial before Caiaphas, the high priest, and unwittingly the high priest continues his preparation of the final lamb. That is the beautiful irony of Jesus' trial. It was the high priest behind it all, preparing the final sacrifice. A charge is brought against Jesus. This man stated, here's the charge, I am able to destroy the temple of God and to raise it up in three days. That's the charge. Caiaphas turns to Jesus, do you make no answer? What is it that these men are testifying against you? Jesus remains silent. Caiaphas, indignant, says, I adjure you by the living God that you tell us whether you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus responds, Yahweh, I am And from hereafter you shall see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of power and coming with the clouds of heaven. And the high priest Caiaphas renders his verdict guilty. And friends, the Romans found no fault in Jesus. None. So Jesus was condemned to death by the verdict of the high priest. Indeed, the high priest prepared the final sacrifice. What does this all mean? A temple destroyed and rebuilt in three days, that's the charge brought against him. 
Jesus suddenly reappeared at the right hand of power. Jesus is the I am. And in the middle of all that, well, when does Jesus ever come? When does God ever come to his temple? Well, Jesus, as you know, is driven to the cross. Before he is crucified, the executioners offer him wine. He refuses it. The Passover is not complete. The fourth cup has not yet been drunk. Jesus is crucified. People walk beneath his cross, mocking him. And guess, guess what insult they hurled at him. You who are going to destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself. Great darkness falls for three hours. And at the end, Jesus, knowing that the scriptures were now fulfilled, cries out, I thirst. Wine is brought and pressed to his lips. And Jesus drank the fourth cup. The final Passover sacrifice is complete. Jesus bows his head and the high priest unwittingly offered a final sacrifice. And at that moment, the temple veil just split apart. Its foundations rumbled with an earthquake and God never again required a single sacrifice on its altars Another drop of animal blood ever needs stain the garments of another priest. The whole thing was eternally purged. It only awaited the complete dismantling of the Romans in 70 AD. The whole thing has been purged. It's gone. And when that temple veil opened, anyone could peer right into the Holy of Holies. And here's what he saw. Nothing. Yahweh was not there. The Lord never returned to his temple. So when was Malachi fulfilled? And when did the Lord come suddenly to his temple? Answer? It's right there in the text of John 2 and verse 19. You're still in Malachi, aren't you? Let's go back to John chapter 2. I forgot you were still in Malachi. Quickly, back to John chapter 2. When? When does the Lord come suddenly to his temple? It's right there in verse 19. Destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. The Lord returned suddenly to his temple, and he raised his broken body from the grave. Friends, the glory returned to a body. It returned to his incarnation. God never intended to dwell forever with his people in a cold stone chamber, hidden behind a veil. John 1, verse 14, the word became flesh and tabernacled among us. And the glory of the Lord came suddenly and returned to that same body. And the resurrection act laid a chief cornerstone in Zion. And I guaranteed, friends, the establishment of a royal priesthood and a holy nation of people without stain, without defilement, without blood on their garments. It guaranteed the resurrection, friends, 
of a whole new humanity transformed from the inside out. I'm going to write my law on their hearts and I'm going to forgive their iniquities. And friends, it proved that God was entirely satisfied with that righteous sacrifice that was laid down in that final Passover having been prepared by Caiaphas, the high priest. And friends, if there's any lingering doubt whatsoever that the Lord has returned to his temple and that the messenger of the new covenant has come, then I point you to a fourth observation, and it's this. In the eighth chapter of Hebrews, the author is really emphatic. Listen to these words. But now... That's present tense. That's present reality. But now Christ, now hath he obtained a more excellent ministry by how much also he is the mediator of a better covenant which was established upon better promises. Right now there's a new covenant with better promises. And what are those promises? Here they are. I will put my law within them and I will write it on their hearts. Yeah, but what about our sins? I will forgive their iniquity and I will remember their sins no more. Friends, at the moment of Christ's death, that hollow stone chamber in Herod's temple revealed that God and man were not reunited. This is sometimes mispreached. How could God and man be reunited? The dead body of Jesus is sealed in a chamber outside the temple. We are not reunited with God. We just killed Jesus. We have no access to God. We have access only to an empty room because God and man cannot occupy the same space. We know that going all the way back to Eden when we fell. We can't get God and man together. But at the resurrection, when Jesus returns suddenly to the temple of his body and raises his humanity from the ground, we have, friends, free and complete access to God through the messenger of the new covenant. And friends, we no longer celebrate the Passover meal at the center of the old covenant. We now celebrate communion. This is the central meal of the new covenant. So can we take a moment here and just really prepare our hearts for communion? If it helps to turn to Jeremiah 31, verse 31, let me encourage you to do that. And notice these two provisions of the new covenant. I will write my law on their hearts. And I will forgive their iniquity and remember their sin no more. Let's take a few moments as believers. Let's analyze our hearts and confess our sin and prepare to take communion. This is a table reserved for believers. We encourage you, if you're not a believer, to just simply observe and also to pray. And ask for the cleansing that can come only through Christ.